0: How is everyone doing out there today? hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn. Thank you very much for tuning in with us here today at the Focus Compounding Podcast. Jeff Gannon, at Jeff Gannon, that's G-E-O-F-F Gannon on Twitter. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Andrew. How are you doing? I am doing great. Excited to uh, talk about a, a topic on volatility, believe okay. it or not, which we don't really talk about too much. No. And uh, I don't think we've talked about it before, but before we do that, uh, if you do want to get access to our investment idea website, go to focuscompounding.com. And if you do sign up and you like some money off of your subscription price, uh, use the podcast promo code, which is podcast, and i will take $10 off of the price indefinitely, as long as you do stay a member. Um, today, we actually are going to be referencing a memo that Jeff wrote a few weeks ago called Stylistic Skew. yes. And um, we're going to be talking a little bit about that. And if you do want to get on that distribution list to receive emails from Jeff that we send out on Sunday mornings, go to focuscompounding.com. And on the homepage, you'll see a spot to enter in your email. Mm-hmm. So it's just a little preface before um, diving into it. In your memo, which I thought was pretty interesting, um, you were talking about Vetla Forslatt, who was on the podcast, and he's written mm-hmm. up on the website many times, how he was talking about GameStop and Intercom Communications. Right. Right, And how, now, of course, two sort of a small sample set, but the two stocks that he chose to write up are on the brink of extinction, right? And are right. very volatile stocks.
1: Yeah, I talked about them like as a contrarian investing. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And you proceed in this memo to talk about He said, I was looking over the five stocks sitting in the planned buy pile for those managed accounts, which is the managed accounts that we manage, and glance at a number we don't normally talk about in these memos, and he put in quotes, beta. Mm -hmm. As you probably know, beta is an indicator of a stock's volatility scale to some index's volatility. A beta of one would suggest similar volatility to the S&P 500. The five stocks in that buy pile for the managed accounts have betas of 0.64, 0.33, 0.19, 0.17, and a negative Mm 0.10. Now, I don't put much stocks in in those betas because the actual correlation with the market for these stocks is probably pretty low. I don't doubt these stocks tend to be green on days when the market is green, just to one-third or so of the extent of the market is up on red days, when the market is red, just to one-third or so on the extent the market is down. Mm -hmm. So that series of five betas doesn't mean much, but it does mean one thing. That wasn't luck. You don't draw betas of 0.64, 0.33, 0.19, 0.17, and negative 0.10 randomly out of a hat with every stock in it. So you were suggesting um, us being obviously risk averse investors in the types of stocks that we are sort of
1: going after. Right, but we don't look at betas. Exactly. So we didn't pick them. Those betas happen accidentally is my point. But they happen systematically for some reason about the kinds of stocks we pick yeah just like my point was um about gamestop and intercom he didn't go out saying oh let me pick the most volatile stocks or the most shorted stocks or the most whatever kind of stocks mm-hmm. but in looking for a really great bargain um you end up in very contrarian things right mm-hmm. sure you know like you're looking for really low multiples for instance those had really low uh evd but multiples and stuff so for looking we we do specifically look for overlooked stocks yeah, we like illiquid stocks, for instance, um, smaller stocks. And
0: I, I think, and to, before you go into that, mm-hmm. the reason I brought this up is because people seem to think if you're in illiquid stocks or whatever, that it's more volatile. And it's like actually the portfolio that we're
1: in, which has some illiquid stocks, mm-hmm. you don't see that when you correlate it to the S and P 500. Right. The only sense in which it's more volatile is like per trade. So each time a trade goes off, uh, it's there's a greater move, obviously. So like even if uh, we talk about uh, Facebook or something, right? So as we're recording this, Facebook dropped a lot recently. Um, uh, Each trade that happened may have been at a small change between the last trade, but the frequency of the trades was so high. That by the time you, a human being, could do anything, it had moved a huge amount probably, right? Mm, Like 20%. Right. But it doesn't mean that it didn't move a penny at a time sometimes if there were many trades going off in a second or something, right? So it is true from an uh, illiquid stock point of view that people may see, oh, it moved a whole percent on one trade from the last trade. Yeah. But over a week, um, a month, a year, they tend to move less in the market, yeah. Uh-huh. and do you think from your experience too that these
0: stocks i mean because i mean we don't really talk about beta mm-hmm. a lot obviously because we're more like a fundamental analyst we don't really care about the volatility and right. how it relates to the sp500 but do you think that uh the group of stocks that we currently own for the managed accounts tend to um act more on their own two feet instead of just being drug up and down with an index and i think that's a lot of the people that do um that our our investors of ours, they sort of realize that. Mm -hmm. Like I remember there's a couple people where they, in their other portfolios, they own a lot of like Facebook and Apple and and a lot of those Mm -hmm. other high flyers or whatever that's getting drug up and down with the market Mm -hmm. for a reason or another. Um, And they look at us sort of as a a good alternative to that. And I think since, um, which not necessarily a surprise, but since actually watching the portfolio Mm -hmm. on a day-to-day basis, I mean, for example, you know, when the markets fell, Um, Last Friday, July 27th, our portfolio didn't even, like, barely even move. And some stocks were up, Mm -hmm.
1: you know, which I I do like to see that, obviously, because to me it's almost like it's more stock picking. Yeah. So we could talk about, like, um, business risk and market risk. Yeah. So the idea is that um, the returns that you get in the stock are more uh, dependent on the performance of that individual stock's business and less on uh, market factors, right? So, simple ways to think about this. For instance, uh, of the stocks that we own, basically none of those, not just none of those, literally none of those are in an index, right? Sure. So, even though there are a couple of stocks that are um, on the New York Stock Exchange, um, they're too small, so they don't get included. So, they're actually, in fact... um, uh, Are both of them part of the five cent? They might be part of the five cent one, which is for illiquid stocks that they can only trade in five cent ones. uh, that they're testing Mm -hmm. out. Yeah, so uh, so they can't trade in in pennies. Um, So that's an indication if you see that that uh, it's part of a group that's considered illiquid and stuff, even though it's on a major exchange. Um, And so we're talking about like those, um, I don't know, two hundred, three hundred million dollar price range, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, market cap. Which um, and then we also have stocks that are actually OTC, um, which are even less liquid. Um, for that reason, but some of them aren't small, right? Mm-hmm. So some of them are large companies. It's just that their stocks are illiquid yeah. for various reasons. And we have one that what market cap uh, is what eight hundred, nine hundred million or something like that. Some, something, yeah. yeah. It, it's quite. We have um, one that's well over half a billion dollars. Yeah. Um, and yet has a pretty wide bid ask spread on most days compared to the market. So which is an indication of illiquidity. That's something we should talk about. Is like um, I think people think of illiquidity sort of like it's uh, an independent uh, factor, but really. Uh, a stock is only illiquid because uh, it, it can be for reasons like it doesn't have a lot of float, right? So like there's a some owner who doesn't want to sell. Sure, so right? controlled more so. Yeah, we had yeah. a write-up on Focus Compatting this past week where um, a stock is about 90% owned by um, an insider uh, and then also by people who had, who got um, an interest in stock through bankruptcy, and they're unlikely to sell. So that makes it very illiquid because only about a tenth of the market cap floats right so um that's one reason that it can happen but the other reason is just that people don't pay a lot of attention to it they don't trade it a lot there are plenty of microcaps that are liquid uh there are plenty of very volatile microcaps so just being sure. a small stock doesn't mean that it's not traded a lot yeah we can think of many that trade a lot um and they're pretty volatile so um like your penny stocks are a good example penny stocks are yeah. very volatile So sure. when we talk about microcaps actually the th- things we own aren't they're not literal penny stocks for one thing no and they're also not very liquid and don't move around a lot
0: why do you like illiquid stocks more than than liquid companies? I mean, for me personally, I like it because, as I alluded to earlier, they send at least the ones that we're invest or mm-hmm. invested in. They tend to operate more so um, on their fundamental, you know, uh, purposes or more. It's like more stock picking than just you know the market's up, so it's up. Well, the market's down, so the stock is down.
1: Yeah, I like it because they're something. They're the only places that usually, outside of some like crashes and things like that, where I can find things that I feel sure are worth more um could then some sort of conservative appraisal mm-hmm. right uh, of their value um we yeah. have one stock in there that we think you know the assets that it owns are worth easily double what what it's selling for in the market right yeah mm-hmm. um and and that's something that it literally can be appraised and stuff yeah. in that case we're talking about we're talking about assets that are appraised regularly so um or at least there's a market for the same exact kind of asset in we the did same some area. fun scuttlebutt on it yeah mm-hmm. yeah and so, uh, so I mean, literally, it's like saying what would uh, you try to price your house by looking at the different sales of things on your street, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. And, and usually that kind of marketing efficiency, let's say, where one house on the street is priced at half of what the other ones are, doesn't happen in big stocks. It only happens in microcaps, mm-hmm. you know. Um, uh, we also have a couple where we think that certain tax things aren't factored in. Like, because there's been a big tax cut. Mm -hmm. So one of them, um, which is actually the biggest stock that we're talking about, um, I I like a lot because it used to trade in line with its peers that are um, on major exchanges. And then after the tax cut, those peers went up a lot. And it didn't, yeah. but it actually will get as much tax benefit as they will. They're all, yeah. you know, all in the U.S. completely. So,
0: so when it's more, um, when we're operating in the liquid space, it's it's just obviously the ideas tend to get more or things aren't as reflective in the stock price as, you know, it is obviously on, on major exchanges yeah, I think and, it's and, and less indexes, and which obviously that makes a lot of sense, theoretically.
1: Yeah, I think that big stocks tend to be so efficiently priced Um In terms of the information that they have and and things like that that are being factored into the price, that a lot of times the opportunities you have to buy big stocks are not because of an inefficiency in the market pricing that one stock, Mm -hmm. but something that's like cyclical with the market. So the market is down a lot. because um, So movements with the market are often your opportunities, or with an entire industry group or something like that, not things that are specific to the stock. So you know, um basically a whole sector is unpopular or is popular right yeah. mm-hmm. you know that that's the most common one. What do you think about um what's the market risk in the illiquid space? Oh, the market risk is that uh there'll be momentum positive momentum happening in big stocks, uh-huh, and you'll really underperform when that happens, yeah, so you'll be flat when the market's up a lot, yeah, that's going to happen, yeah, I mean, um if you own just yeah. illiquid stocks. And the market's up 20%, 30% in a, in a um, year. Chances yeah. are,
0: yeah, you're not going to do as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I remember um, 2009, for instance, um, and it was only the last eight months or so of that where the market was going up. But um, uh, that was one where uh, where it would be very hard in small stocks to keep up. Because you probably had, I don't know, if it was up 50% or some incredible number in the last months off of a very uh, low bottom, obviously, because there's just been a crash. Mm-hmm. But that's the kind of thing that isn't going to happen in illiquid stocks. They're not going to move that fast up yeah. or down. Mm-hmm. I yeah. agree.
0: What do you think about the argument that um, you know microcap stocks are micro-caps for a reason?
1: Oh, that's true. Yeah. I agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. And the reason is there's two possible reasons. One is that it's not a very good business. Mm-hmm. okay, and then the other one is that it's just not a very big industry, so the companies that people really like are you know let's say facebook netflix um google uh amazon let's let's use those okay apple Apple um so uh those are companies that are both good, yeah right they own very high returns on capital, but on top of that, they happen to be in a huge business like it could be completely global or completely national, and there's one surviving uh company right
0: yeah.
1: mm-hmm. ad agencies are a great business too, right. But they have infinite returns on capital, but they're never going to get quite that size because advertising is a much smaller percent of the economy, mm-hmm. right? So it's a couple percent of the economy. That's it. So if you are talking about something that's two percent of the economy versus something that's you know a huge percentage, or something that isn't going to be winner takes all, so that's the thing that you have with uh, ad agencies is a really good example of that you are never going. Um, but it's also law firms, uh, auditors, sure. things like that. There is never going to be just one, so they're they're going to be very big. But they're never going to be as big as Facebook, right? Yeah. Because that's what we have. So it can be because it's just not a big enough niche, right? So the company never expands into something that's that huge. Amazon's a really good example because it's a retailer. But Facebook's also a pretty good example because it's – and Google to some extent because they're uh, media companies. Mm -hmm. So some of the biggest companies always are media and retail because they can be completely national in just one company, right? Sure. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if you look at a list of all the companies that created the most value in history – There's some drug companies and things, but it's a lot of oil companies and um, retailers because they can just keep growing, growing to a tremendous scale where you can't have that with these little stocks. So, um, you know, microcaps can either be businesses that don't retain a lot of earnings and uh, have high returns on capital, or they can be companies that just um, can't grow that much. They have to pay a lot out. Mm -hmm. So, like, uh, we have one company in the uh, accounts which has been paying. it's had very good returns like Apple for fifty years or something, but it's been paying a dividend for fifty years. Yeah. Right? It buys back some stock. Those are ways to avoid getting too big. And in that case, it's because a customers almost never leave whoever they're with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's like four companies in that industry who are really big. They're one of the four. But it's real it's impossible for them to take customers from their competitors. Because the competitors never want to, uh, because the customers never want to leave whoever they right, Switching costs, sure. Yeah, the yeah. switching costs are incredible.
0: And, but and that company's not technically known by a lot of people. Why?
1: Because it's an OTC stock? Yeah, I think so. It, yeah. it doesn't, and it's a, it's a stock that doesn't file with the SEC. Uh-huh. So it pre- presents all of the sort of information you'd have with the SEC, basically. And in fact, some additional information um, on its own website. But it doesn't put it on Edgar hmm and this doesn't file with the sec and so because of that sometimes it's not on certain websites you know a lot of times people screen for things and stuff like that and companies that don't file with the sec might not show up on those screens mm-hmm. we know certain websites that you can tell are pulling all their data from agar and nowhere else yeah so they don't have any information on some of those companies why do you think they don't file with the sec
0: or like, I guess, I mean, cause people may not know the stock we're talking about, but let's just say stocks in Different general, stocks, dark, dark stocks. That There's don't a lot of reasons SEC. why.
1: So in more recent years, some of them do it to save money cause it got kind of expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, but in other cases, it may have just been the way that the stock was distributed in the first place. It, it's interesting why some stocks that are even smaller do file and some, uh, don't. Um, usually it's however they went public in the beginning is the real reason. So if a company, um, uh, went public in a way that didn't require to file with the SEC um, then I think that it can continue to be that way so in that case there's large ownership by employees yeah. especially and things like that so that would make sense uh, that that company that we're talking about there actually cares a lot about its stock and talks about its stock and stuff but you, in other cases they don't so I think that's a, a good reason why they wouldn't file with the, S, uh, with the SEC but you know you'd think it would be just be control companies and things like that but um, we but like we've talked on this podcast before about Naco, which is a control company, but does file. Yeah, yeah. So because it did many years ago when I was on the New York Stock Exchange. So I mean, anything that wanted to be on a major exchange to be traded, their stock has to do that. Um, I think that the major exchanges uh, are not allowed to ha- uh, list anyone who doesn't file with the SEC if they're a U.S. company. Uh huh. Um. I don't know if that rule will ever. Change. That's probably why it changed, and obviously on OTC. Yeah, so that's so companies end up on OTC for that reason. Mm-hmm.
0: There's but there seems to be like a negative connotation with a lot of people between OTC and sort of I guess crappy stocks or like pop oh, absolutely dumps. maybe because like the early like 2000s or 90s with like pink sheets and and I guess like penny stocks and all that sort of stuff. But this obviously sure. is a legitimate
1: business that's been around, and as you said, has mm-hmm. has had a profit for multiple years. And it's yeah. the same thing. as like China. China is a good example that way. So Chinese stocks—should you be afraid um, owning the very biggest Chinese stocks around? Um, I, I don't know about that. Uh, but the truth is that reverse merger frauds come from China, and they—we knew that for a long time and stuff. Yeah. Um, so it, it doesn't mean that all Chinese stocks are frauds because of that. There's different kinds of them. The frauds were usually very small stocks, um, and in the case that we're talking about here with um, with OTC stocks. It, one thing is there's a huge difference between liquid over the counter stocks, yeah like what we're talking about penny stocks um they're often like we we're saying like pump and dumps type stuff and um and very speculative businesses things like that versus um uh versus companies that don't trade a lot and uh don't have a lot of interest in driving up the stock price um a lot of the scam type things have certain things in common like they're they're usually younger companies. Um, they sometimes switch businesses a lot. Uh they put out a lot of press releases that are very optimistic about certain things, trying to get investor interest.
0: I'm looking on my phone. I remember uh, I, I remember I sent it to you and I don't know if we chat about it on the um on the podcast, but I, here we go. I don't remember who put it out, uh, but it was a, a data table of yeah. back tests of size and liquidity, mm-hmm. and like how the portfolios have done since 1972 to 2017. Yeah, it was interesting. Is the micro cap with low liquidity did um, performance wise did the best? Yeah, and it anyway. scale. It scales yeah. down the more liquid that the, the micro cap became. Right, so the know, returns got better the
1: the less liquid less that, it, that was, it was, and it became worse. Yeah, yeah. In fact, um, and then
0: and then as of course, like it goes from micro to small. I'll just read off the numbers for um, low liquid micro caps. The return average return was sixteen percent. Small caps fifteen point six five percent. Mid cap fourteen percent. Large cap eleven point four percent. So it's interesting mm-hmm. how it still kind of keeps that. Consistency as it gets more liquid, or I mean, as it gets bigger, the returns start to get hurt.
1: Yeah. And so basically, a really good category is a great category is illiquid microcaps, but a terrible category is liquid microcaps. Yeah. Because yeah. I'm looking at that,
0: right? The li- high liquidity microcaps is 0.11%. Mm-hmm. So it goes from illiquid side
1: of uh, 16% down to 0.11. Right. Yeah. There you go. So, um, well, this is like more technical than we probably want to get into, but you, you know, academics talk about the size effect. And I've never really believed, so that smaller stocks outperform bigger stocks. And this is an argument that they put forward for mutual funds and all sorts of things. And I don't really believe it exists. Uh-huh. Because here's the thing. Smaller stocks tend to, the really small stocks that give you the great returns tend to have two things in common. One, um, they're cheap. And people aren't taking that into account often with the market cap. Sure. So if you we have a company that we think is worth, it, say we have a company and we think it has land that's worth $500 million. Well, when it's a $100 million company, it shows up as being this little microcap in yeah. the lowest uh, size group. But then when it's 200, it moves into the second category. Then when it's 400, it moves into the third category, right? But in reality, it's gone from being 20% of what we thought it was worth to being 80% of what we thought it was worth. Sure. Mm-hmm. That's an effect that's caused by being very cheap. Yeah. Right? So it's small in part because it's cheap. And the other thing is it usually is moving in terms of liquidity that it was least liquid when it was smallest and it's most liquid when it's biggest. So cheap and illiquid is basically what I think is your size effect, you yeah. know, the really big part of what your returns are. Now, it might be true that very, very big stocks uh, don't do as well. But even very, very big stocks, the least liquid of them still are are better performers. Yeah, than the liquid ones? Yeah, well, yeah. you can even see that with and companies like... That was on that like, chart as well. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, you can even see that with companies like... like So there's some very unusual companies like Seaboard or Berkshire Hathaway or something, which for a long part of their history were very big, mm-hmm. and yet were less liquid not well-known. They didn't split their stock, so they traded at a really high price, things like that. Um, and they often performed well, but better than people would think, whereas the most liquid large-cap stocks um, don't necessarily perform as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And obviously, if it's very liquid, people are paying a lot of attention to it. There's a lot of news stories about it. There's, you know. Why do you think management want their company to be liquid? You would think it'd be the other way around. Um, that's a, uh, well. To create a market for themselves or what? I mean, I don't, you know. I think even companies that I've looked at that are very small, that are very illiquid, usually like the idea of being more liquid as being attractive to them. Um, Just because then it's more attractive to the market, which I guess it doesn't, you know what I'm saying? I think most people kind of assume that the market is efficient. And so if you assume that the market's efficient, then um, your costs are related to liquidity things. Mm -hmm. I mean, we know that because we've traded things. We've we've bought things for the accounts. And we know that um, we'll often put in a bid, right? Yep. And then wait a week or two before mm-hmm. it goes off because there's a bid and an ask and there's a spread between them but
0: that's because we're also putting it below the bid i mean we could get filled on day one if we wanted to but every single order we've put we've put we could we've always placed a bid like a couple percent to, or percent right. below the bid yeah below the
1: bid yeah but a lot of people aren't even putting aren't a lot of people aren't even bidding the bid they're bidding the ask to make sure that it happens right away yeah so if a stock is uh let's say it last trade was thirty dollars and someone is offering to buy it, is bidding to buy it at twenty nine dollars, and someone is asking, uh, they're trying to sell it at thirty one dollars. Some people will go and pay thirty one dollars for that stock. Yeah. Now it's true that in general we don't even bid twenty nine; we bid a little bit less than twenty nine in the assumption that there's a odds are at some point Random the walk. stock will sure. just yeah exactly the stock will randomly walk below um, where that bid is, but. Even putting that issue aside that we're counting on, on that happening as much as it doesn't happen, um, you, you still have the issue that a lot of people want it done immediately. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know a lot of people that I've talked to uh, who are bothered by illiquid stocks because – they are so eager to get it done once they put in once they decide they want to own a stock liquidity they want to makes own people it. yeah liquidity makes people act weird right they want to own it yeah. so and i can see that because it's kind of like if you decide oh we're going to put in a bid for that house yeah you want to close sure. you want it to happen you yeah. want it to be accepted you just bid. want it to be done in the you don't about want, it you don't want to put in a bid and then wait you know a, a year waiting for it you yeah
0: know? Mm-hmm. no i completely agree but i think it's more it's more of like investing i think when you're more in illiquid markets than worrying so much about the price every single second. I don't know. It just it's mm-hmm. it's a little bit differently, I feel like.
1: Yeah, and we've talked about how you have to like the
0: perception of it as an investor where you have
1: these stocks. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I we've talked a lot about how you have to just ignore certain trades and things. Yeah. Because you'll see people say, oh, it went up four percent or it went down four percent or whatever. But on volume that's way lower than the normal volume for the day. Yes. Yeah, so how much does that matter? Yeah, who cares? Yeah. And I tell that people all the time in illiquid stocks where I say, okay you're emailing me about a move that happened that was 500 shares. <laughs> you own 5,000 shares of this stuff. Yeah, who cares? So yeah. someone has one-tenth of, you know, uh, bought or and sold one-tenth of what you own, okay? This person may have more money than you have. Yeah. What did this even matter to them? Why did they do it? And you're putting a lot of... Um, you're saying that there's a lot of information value in that, right? And I don't know how much information value there is in Facebook dropping 20% or whatever, but we know that a lot of people... Kind of voted with their shares that that's what should have happened. Mm-hmm. Okay. They could have been delusional or whatever, but that is, you know, sure. It, that's what happened. So, it, in, a, in a democratic sense, that really did happen. Yeah. And it, it really reflects their feelings about those things. Now, they might have been um, behaving in sort of like a herd way or whatever and very emotionally. So, you know, but that's a different kind of thing that can happen. But they really did. You, you are getting in Facebook a move that um, reflects the. Beliefs of a lot of people, of a huge number of people, really big group. And so that's very different than a very small move in volume that you have in an illiquid stock. Mm-hmm. It can be just as wrong because people can be extreme in terms of emotions and stuff. And you sure. see that. In, I think in big stocks, that's what I've always found is that it has to be something very emotional um, that gives you the big mispricings. It's not something that sits there for a long time. Whereas illiquid stocks, sometimes it's information that people sort of don't factor in information as quickly and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Like I said, it's less efficient. Yeah. Um so so the big stocks are tied more to the market. So they have beta that's more closer to 1. Sure. And usually um not always, but usually if you the times when you get a really good bargain in really big stocks are when the market's cheap and the times when they're really expensive is when the market's expensive. You know, and in illiquid stocks it's a little different. It's a little easier to find them all the time. Um generally i've only found that buying big stocks makes sense uh when the it makes sense to buy the market yeah so i haven't really had a lot of success um by um finding any big stocks to buy when i thought the market was overpriced Mm -hmm. whereas i have found small stocks to buy when the market's overpriced
0: where do you think since we're talking about i guess liquidity i guess it makes a lot of sense to sort of chat about people are thinking about when i know we've spoken a lot about this but where do you think i guess for listeners our strategy will sort of top out at and I guess just full disclosure, to mm-hmm. everyone, Jeff and I don't really want to. I don't think you have aspirations to run a twenty billion dollar fund or. or no, firm you or can't do that. Like that, and you can't do that with this kind of strategy. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Like we just want to perform well for our, for our investors. Right. That's mm-hmm. we're not we're not in the asset raising game. We just yeah. want to perform well and put up good numbers. Yeah. Where do you think the strategy sort of
1: tops out at? Well, I said a good rule of thumb always. Uh, I've said before for anyone thinking about this is that um, if your fund, if the assets under management are the same size as the stock itself, the market cap that's when you run into a problem usually mm-hmm. so you can mostly focus on uh, you're mostly going to be okay in stocks that are smaller than your own portfolio size uh, this is true also for individuals but individuals usually have portfolios that are so small relative to micro caps that it doesn't really matter yeah sure but the same thing would happen for individuals so if you had a 30 million dollar stock portfolio a 20 million dollar stock could present a problem mm-hmm. but a 60 million dollar stock shouldn't present a problem Ah, uh, now there's issues of float and stuff and all that, but um, but generally that's true. So, so if you just say, can you invest in under hundred million dollars stocks? Yes, if your fund is under hundred million dollars. Uh-huh. Right. That's the easiest way to think about it. And I think sure. that's a really good real clear thumb. Real of thumb. Yeah, yeah.
0: No, I think that's good. And and I would agree because obviously yeah. everyone that's that's reached out to us um, has asked, you know, where does the strategy sort of top out at? Uh, where do
1: you guys mm-hmm. at what point is it not a, a good strategy to yeah use. at yeah. the moment the of the five stocks that we have they're not um they're not super small they didn't turn out to be as small as i thought they would mm-hmm. so i'd say generally they're in the range of like 100 to 500 million yeah yeah, I think it's the range. I, I would, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that based on that, you could invest in things that are, you, you could be managing money that's in the $100 million to $500 million range, yeah. yeah. And then you have spinoffs and things like that, which, can you know. be bigger and more liquid. Yeah, they can yeah. be bigger if something's happening temporarily with them. It's kind of the inefficiencies that we're talking about. So some things can happen with time that gives you an opportunity. So like really big spinoffs can be, an opportunity to buy into something, even with a bigger fund, but it's only temporary. It's a temporary inefficiency; and it's going to go away. Whereas you have kind of a constant supply of uh, of the um, really illiquid stocks. You often have a longer time period where you can buy them. The really small stocks, um, yeah. But but even you know, Naco fulfills both. It was a spinoff, mm-hmm. and it's it's by standards of a stock on the New York Stock Exchange, quite illiquid. Sure, it's not illiquid compared to you know over the counter stocks. But mm-hmm.
0: and what's the market cap on that? A two hundred thirty million something
1: yeah. like that, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the float's less, but not that much less because they control it through through super voting shares. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we float is something that people should keep in mind, which is that if a company, if it, insiders own a really big part of the company, then you really only should count the part of the company that um, floats freely. So, what I mean by that is like. We have one stock that I don't know. I'd say it's a three hundred million dollars stock, but management owns uh, a third of it. So then it's really you can think of it sort of like a two hundred million dollars stock. Yeah, yeah, that trades. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. the amount that's trading. Yeah,
0: yeah. No, I think that's that's great. It's it's interesting because, like I said, there's a lot of people that don't like to go more so in the illiquid space because they think it's riskier or they think that for mm-hmm. whatever reason, it's just it's not a good place to operate. In. And maybe it's because maybe it gets like a bad like micro caps get a bad uh, sort of reputation because of more liquid ones that are just pretty much trading vehicles for penny stock traders where the moves can be so crazy.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I also think it's that it inclu- includes like having to think about things that they don't normally think about. Mm-hmm. So there are some people put in market orders for a lot of things. Um, and I've said before, you shouldn't. There's you can just learn never to put in market orders, and that's fine. And you can live a perfectly normal <laughs> investing life doing that, even in really big stocks. Yeah, and it trains you in a good way. But um, thinking about, oh, I can't put in a market order for an like You absolutely can't. Yeah you would immediately um, cost yourself money by doing that. Like mm-hmm. I said in the example of a stock where the bid's 29 and the ask is 31, if you put in a market order, you're going to lose money that you're never gonna get back. Yeah. The person who's selling to you is, uh, who often is a market maker, literally, um, is going to make money by getting that the spread, Yeah. right? So, you know, you just have to avoid that. But it's not hard to do. It's unlimited. limited. It, uh-huh. Yeah, there's brokers that will do that for you for no more cost than if you have put in the market order. Mm-hmm. So it's not hard, but you have to learn that extra thing about it.
0: Do you think also it's because it's a little less crowded space? People, there's sort of that that um, social proof or yes. or confirmation mm-hmm. bias with other people. You know, it, there's not a lot of people that write about these ideas because
1: there's just no one reading about them. Right. I think that people like to have uh, being something that some other people like. Sure. Even if they're contrarian or whatever they Someone to want Strengthen a group of value investors who sure. agree with them. So I think that, yeah, sometimes I think people, I know a lot of people who find something, who are very good investors and analysts, uh, who find something really small like that mm-hmm. and say it must be missing, there must be something really wrong. Yeah, why when is they're it actually, a small company? Right, or, where there yeah. actually isn't something wrong with it. Yeah. Um, and I'll sort of be like, well, you know, there's not, it's really small. There's not that many people looking at it. They might not want to be stuck in this for a long time. Um, that you know, for professionals, how much are they going to put? Like, for instance, if you're really diversified, as m- many funds are, mm-hmm. then it gets even into the question of how much is it worth it to look into these kinds of ideas? Because if you're only going to put two percent in, it's not yeah, really who worth cares. it. Yeah. Sure. yeah. I mean that that's true with a lot of these things. So
0: look at that. I'm gonna see if I'm gonna retweet that that uh, or I'll repost that that chart. I thought chart, it was a really yeah. interesting chart. Or if anyone wants to take a look at that, uh, feel free to email me at info at dot com or find me on Twitter.
1: Yeah. So this is part of a bigger thing that uh, you can apply whether you're investing in uh, small stocks or big stocks. Well, it's pretty obvious. Uh, you want to buy things that are good, but are not popular at the moment. So sure. even if you're going to buy big stocks, okay. But buy them at the moments where they're the least popular, the least liquid. You know, they have the lowest trading volume and stuff at that moment.
0: When I went to the Daily Journal meeting and Mm -hmm. um, Charlie Munger, or this was two years ago, I think.
1: uh, Charlie Munger,
0: they were asking him, I think, where he would focus today. And he Mm -hmm. said, I'm pretty sure he would focus focus on smaller companies. Or he has a a grandson or someone that has an investment partnership that he's operating. And he focuses more in the smaller type of companies as well. Mm -hmm. He thinks that's uh, probably a better
1: place to, to look, too. Yeah, I think it's the most the, that's most where the inefficient, most inefficiencies yeah. are. Yeah. Now if you have some edge, you know some other area really well, then focus on that because yeah. you you'll have an advantage over other people. Sure. Um so I think, you know, if you know some industry really well or something, but what do you think then, about
0: people that do that? Like they're just pharmaceutical investors, or they're just restaurant investors, or they're just oil investors or, oil investors or whatever. Maybe not oil, that's a bad example because yeah. if the you know oil market <laughs> turns they get slaughtered.
1: But I'm just saying like what do you think about those types of I think of it investors? makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and it's a, great. If I was putting just together, like, what you know. Yeah. Um had to put together some sort of diversified fund, I would find five different people to focus on five uh, specific things like that. Like someone would just do, um, you know, like, like for instance, someone could just do fashion related things. That's a big enough thing and you can learn about it and it's a skill. You know, that's every little you know. thing about it. Yeah. yeah. Right. But it's a big enough area to invest in that way or something. restaurants is a great example because all around the world and stuff, there's you know, things that you can learn about restaurants, sure. restaurants, retail. Yeah. Um, I think that's definitely true. Um, and I think uh, that's a good thing to focus on. Yeah. Because you're focusing to, to learn more about something than other people know about it. Yeah. The problem with the things that are really liquid is that generally you'll be competing with a lot of other people who know as much about it as you do. sure, And who ha- know the same sorts of things that you know, like are looking at it the same way. You know, so if you know something... Uh, like retail or something. If you know something beyond just oh, I'm going to buy the things where the same store sales are going up, I'm going to sell them when the same store sales go down. If you have some insights that are different from that, then you know that can That's be the really perception. To, yeah, sure. When yeah, you're trying to so handicap if, it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so you, if you have it, it, you come up with different ways of looking at things that way. I think that that makes a lot of sense, and I think there's opportunities in those sorts of stocks. I've noticed that with.
0: You wrote about Cheesecake Factory. Yeah. I think that was sort of your analysis on focus compounding.
1: Yeah, right. because I think that people can over... Um, that investors generally... Um, I don't know about investors who specialize in those areas, but investors generally can o- overweight that stuff where they're really eager to buy it when the same store sales are up. Yeah. And, and the they're really ready to happen. sell it when it's not without looking really hard at whether it's uh how it's same source deals are um compared to other companies so if it's actually losing market share or not
0: yeah and that's one thing that i think you and i talk about a lot and that's sort of the first step that i do is i try to understand what the market thinks about the company mm-hmm. and what's it sort of factoring in. and when we talked about that one business um that we own where you're using the example of where you could see what your neighbors is worth or what the land is worth, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, sometimes if you think that if the market's valuing that land or valuing that house or whatever example Mm -hmm. you're going to use at price X, but you could actually do the work and say, actually, you know, based on everything we've done, it's actually probably worth Y, which is a lot higher than X. You know, that's where you can make an interesting decision or investment that's different than the variant perception is what they talk about. I mean,
1: in that case, we were able to say, okay, you take number of acres and the market cap, right? Or the enterprise value. And you say, here's the price per acre of something. And then you can just ask, well, what is that normally valued for?
0: Yeah, I got kicked off Airbnb for doing that. I talked to a lot of people, people in that general area, the
1: owners <laughs> that are
0: saying, my account. And then I asked them to turn it back on. And I told him I wouldn't do it again. That was kind of funny. That's dedication right there. This guy,
1: but yeah. Yeah.
0: But no, I, I agree. That's sort of Howard Marks level one, level two thinking mm-hmm. that he says. And it's so funny because I remember somebody, a buddy texted me. Um, this was probably a year ago and he was in his investing class or his finance class or whatever. And he told me that um, he purchased, Tesla, okay. um, because he thought that they were going to sell more cars and, and, and have more revenue, and, mm-hmm. and I'm sure since that, I mean, at the time when he told me that, Tesla was down a bunch from right. it, and mm-hmm. I was thinking, I was like, well, that's, of course, that's Howard Marks' level one thinking, oh, uh, they're going to sell a lot of cars so that I'm going to make a lot of, or the right. stock price is going to go up, right? It's mm-hmm. like, who doesn't know that? But level two thinking is actually I think they're going to sell a lot of cars and I think um, or I, I think they're going to sell more and derive more revenue or they're going to improve their margins. It's mm-hmm. the difference of opinion where it's actually you make
1: money in the market. Yeah. Yeah. Like when we talked about cheesecake, it was, you know, the, that uh, the question of whether the popularity was actually down or not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So people looking and say, OK, same store of sales are down. That's true. But then is it really becoming less popular compared to other concepts that are like it or not if it is then that's a big thing to to know but what you want is for the market to think it's becoming less popular and then you figure out some way actually all restaurants are down that month or whatever you know what i mean yeah sure you can find that out you know Mm -hmm. um and we have that i mean i've talked about that a couple times with tax related things that the tax cuts have really done that for a couple of stocks where um the market seems to be mispricing some some tax cut things yeah not in really big stocks but in some smaller stocks and things some stocks that have more complicated tax situations and stuff. You can figure out that the market isn't fully appreciating how much they could save and will save, you know.
0: I think that's a very good first step, though, in the investment process is try to understand, well, maybe after you read the 10K, Mm -hmm. because you don't get biased, but try to understand what the market is pricing the stock at. And when you think about handicapping it, you know, because then you could sort of do diligence from there and yeah. see see if, um, you know, you agree with the market or if, if you
1: don't, you know, yeah, have your but, own conclusion. But we're talking about going beyond like what's the P.E. and stuff. To oh, of course. I'm not what, saying do to, that. Yeah. yeah. yeah I'm to, saying actually. But I mean, we're talking about like in terms of how it's pricing it in terms of, oh, does the market think that it's going to grow or yeah. not? How mm-hmm. much does the market think it has to grow? You know, it, you want to figure out something where you have really high confidence that you think something's going to happen. The market doesn't think it's going to happen. Yeah. Or that you um, think something's almost uh, certain not to happen in the market, things is going to happen, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Not saying like, oh, this company's, this company's trading
0: at two times um, revenue, and all other companies trade at five times revenue, so it's got to be right. wrong, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's totally different than that. Yeah. Cool. Well, I thought that was a pretty great discussion. If anyone um, wants to ask us any questions on, you know, liquid stocks, like mm-hmm. I said, it's kind of a, a, a good topic with a lot of people. You can email us. My email is info at focuscompounding.com and Jeff's is Gannon on investing mm-hmm. at gmail.com. And, or you could send it to me and I'll forward it on to him. Or you could also ask us questions on Twitter. Um, of course, if you do want to get a topic talked about on the show, feel free to also reach us via those avenues as well. Thing, you want to add anything to the. No. close your remarks. No, they we, can
1: go to focuscombine.com and they'll see stuff about um, the memo that they can sign up for. They'll see, we mentioned the accounts, they can look at that stuff. There's all sorts of things there. Most of what we do is there. That is true. Yeah.
0: That is true. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody for tuning in here with us here today. It was a longer podcast and a lot of fun and we'll see everyone in the next podcast. Take care. Cool. That was a good